Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's, uh, let's pray together as we come into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be here. I thank you, Father, that we are able to sing songs of praise, glorifying your name, glorifying the name of your Son and inviting your Holy Spirit to come and work and move amongst us. And I pray as we come into our our message today uh, that you would continue, that we would continue to hear what you are saying to us, that our hearts would be stirred and open to what you are saying, whether it's the words of the message or simply by being here, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and that we would receive all that we Uh, need to receive today. We pray against those things that might block us from hearing your voice, those things we've carried in with us. And Lord Jesus, we want to say in this place that we can hear your scripture, we can hear your voice. And we say this in the name of Jesus, amen. Now something I believe, and I've, uh, I've probably only started to believe this in the last, you know, five or six years, but I believe that the ordinary Christian life is an extraordinary life. And I believe that those who have been sealed and filled by the very Spirit of God, those who have been made living temples of God's presence on this earth, are by virtue of those facts living extraordinary lives, even in the midst of what looks to be ordinary life. Because everywhere we go in this world, in our homes, in our workplaces, on holiday, we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And therefore, we are a people with a purpose and a mission And what seems to be just ordinary life is actually made extraordinary because we have a union with Christ. And we are filled by the Holy Spirit. And we have our identity told to us in Scripture that we are the very children of God. Does that not make your ordinary life very extraordinary? That is incredible to me. Now here's something interesting to me. In a, in a culture that urges us to pursue the next big thing and to chase bigger and better experiences, one of the things I believe is that we need to learn to embrace the ordinary, the extraordinary life living in the midst of ordinary life. We need to trust that God who has called us and made us his own is working in us and through us even in what looks to be the ordinariness of life. We trust that God will work in us and through us as we live faithfully in the place in which we find ourselves Uh, Gordon Smith says, the whole of our lives is lived in light of God's kingdom. This means we no longer view parts of our lives as more sacred than other parts, but all that we are, everything we are, everywhere we go, our work, our home, our family, is lived under the kingdom reign of Jesus, and that changes everything. Sometimes I get people asking me questions, and a lot of times it's younger people. It's, you know, kids graduating high school or or just starting college, university, and they say, how do I do God's will? How do I know that what I'm doing, the life I'm living, the, the path I'm choosing is God's will for me? And sometimes they get really bent out of shape about it. The saddest story I heard was one guy who, uh, He really wanted to be a teacher, but he hadn't heard the audible voice of God say, be a teacher, so he was just delivering pizzas, waiting. And I said, well, if you're good at it and you want to do it, you should go do that. He said, I don't know if God wants me to do it. So here's the thing. If you want to know that the ordinary life you're living is in God's will, there's two principles you need to follow. 
The first principle is this. Be faithful to where God has called you. Whether that's being a teacher or a dentist, an electrician, a lawyer, a father, a mother, a pastor, be faithful where God has you. And that's what I wanted to tell this kid who, who wanted to be a teacher. Can you be faithful at being a teacher? Can you be the best teacher you can be? Can you worship God? Can you pray? Yes, then do that. Go do it and see what God does with it. So be faithful where God has placed you and called you. And secondly, we need to have hearts that are consistently oriented towards Jesus. That is, we need to continually keep our eyes fixed on the things of heaven, fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And with those two things in, in place, our eyes, the eyes of our heart are oriented towards Jesus and we're faithful to where he's called us. We can be certain we're walking in God's will. I think Sharon Hod Miller probably summed it up the best. She said, God is not capricious. His will is not a tightrope, and the narrow way is not hidden, and it's not a precarious series of steps. It is very simply abiding in Christ. Abiding means seeking him, listening to him, talking to him, meditating on his word, imitating him. And so if you want to do God's will, abide in Christ and live your life. Trust in the goodness of your heavenly Father. Trust in the presence of the Holy Spirit to lead you to guide you, to speak to you. Because the ordinary Christian life is an extraordinary life. And I do get nervous sometimes at the narrative of the Western church that kind of champions people, you know, kind of sets people up and saying, this is an extraordinary man of God, or this is an extraordinary woman of God. And, and what it does is it subtly tells us, you're not extraordinary like they are. And I think we subtly kind of get the message that we couldn't do what they're doing because they are set apart. They are different from us. They are the extraordinary ones. And so I get nervous about things like that. Because sometimes we think, well, my life is so ordinary. I could never do these extraordinary things for God. Yet ordinary life is where most of us spend our time. And most of us are very ordinary people. And so what I'd like to say is that God works in our ordinariness if that's a word, to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. I'm, I'm not sure if that's really a word. I think it is. Spell check, I don't think, flagged it. But you get what I'm saying. That God uses and works in our ordinariness to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. Frederick Buchner once said, you enter the extraordinary by way of the ordinary. We encounter God in the ordinary places of our lives because we spend most of our time doing ordinary things but we enter the extraordinary by way of the ordinary. And some of the things that we kind of, some of the Christian life that we see as ordinary is actually pretty extraordinary. Let me give you an example. It's, uh, it comes out of a, a story from D.L. Moody's life. So D.L. Moody was, you know, one of these famous preacher and, and evangelists, and Moody had spent a lot of years in ministry. He was running children's programs. He was preaching to hundreds and thousands of people. He traveled to different countries, and he saw hundreds of people come to faith through his ministry, and he poured himself into the ministry so much that he was really beginning to feel burned out from all this personal striving and effort that he was putting in. One evening at the close of one of his messages, two women approached him, and I don't know if we know their names. I, I couldn't find their names anywhere. It's just two women. I don't know who they are. Two ordinary women approached him and said they were praying for him. And they came to him after all of his evening meetings, and after each meeting they said, we've been praying for you, Mr. Moody. And he actually became a little bit upset by it. He said, why are you praying for me? Shouldn't you be praying for the people who are unsaved? There's a bit of ego mixed in that. 
But they told him they were praying for him to receive power. And they didn't really know what they meant by power. And so those words kept bothering him, though. They kept ringing in his head. We want you to receive power. So he went and he asked them, what do you mean? What are you talking about power? And they said, what we, what we are praying for you, Mr. Moody, is that you would receive a filling, a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. And when he understood that's what they were praying for him for, he said, well, I want to join you in that. He, pray, he prayed with them. And then on his own, he would pray for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't too long after that, an ordinary day, he was walking the streets of New York City. And that prayer was answered. In the middle of the street, he felt the power of God coming upon him. And he actually had to rush to a friend's house that was close by and ask to stay in a room there because the power of of the Holy Spirit was coming upon him so forcefully that he actually said this, he wrote this down. He said he was filling his soul with such joy that he had to ask God to withhold it lest he die from joy on that very spot. I've never been that joyful in my life. Like, so joyful I might die, which sounds amazing. And he went out from that place with the power of the Holy Spirit upon him. And Moody would go on to continue his ministry, but without that same human striving as before. He wrote this down. He said, after this, the sermons were no different, and I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds more were converted, and I would not be placed back where I was before that blessed experience. Here's what I want you to notice about Moody. It's not about Moody. What was the catalyst for all this to occur in Moody's life? It was prayer, and it was two women who I don't even know if we know their names. Two ordinary women committed to pray for their pastor, and an extraordinary move of God occurred. Right? These, these uh, women did what ordinary men and women of faith always do. They prayed, and, and that, that ordinary faith led to this extraordinary result. And even Moody would say that he was an ordinary man, and it was really the extraordinary power of God that enabled his ministry. So it's not about the extraordinary D.L. Moody, it's about the extraordinary power of God moving through ordinary men and women, and it's about ordinary Christian practices like prayer being infused with the very power of God. So we're going to be examining the life of David, and what we're going to see is that like David, we, we often encounter God in the ordinariness of our lives. Now, we all know David did some very extraordinary things. But it was because he had the very power of God working through him. The Spirit of the Lord was powerfully upon him, leading him and guiding him and supporting him. And you know what the cool thing is about about being a believer now? Is that all of us have been given of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that was leading and guiding and, and anointing King David is the Holy Spirit that has now been poured out on all believers. So there's something we can learn from that. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him and all David had to do All David had to do was keep his heart turned towards God, his heart oriented towards God, and the path would unfold before him. You'll know King David's story, and later in life he gets into trouble, and it's when his heart turns away from the things of God. And his path leads him into grievous sin, and that's going to be the last sermon in this series. We're going to look at that. But let's pick up the David story from his very humble beginnings as a shepherd boy. It all starts with King Saul disobeying God and turning his heart away from God in rebellion. And because of Saul's rebellion, the anointing of the kingship, the very spirit of God, is removed from Saul, and a new king must be found. Now it's the prophet's job in that time to anoint the new king, and Samuel is the prophet. Now Samuel is the same prophet who anointed King Saul, and now Samuel is the prophet who needs to anoint a new king. We're going to come into 1 Samuel chapter 16, so if you have your Bibles, you can can kind of follow along. We're kind of going to jump through pretty quick, because I've got three weeks to do the life of David, so we're going to fly through some of this stuff. Um, But here's how it picks up. 
1 Samuel 16 opens with, The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul? I've rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I've selected a king from his sons. So Samuel then has to go to Bethlehem. Now Samuel's afraid that Saul might kill him if he finds out why he's going. So the Lord suggests to him, hey, Samuel, take a heifer with you, do a sacrifice, that way Saul won't know what's happening. It's all gonna be good. So Samuel gets to Bethlehem, he finds Jesse and his sons. He says, we're having a sacrifice. He consecrates Jesse and his sons. That means he sets them apart for a special purpose, which might be a tip-off to Jesse that something special is happening. Hey, me and my sons are consecrated. This is interesting. We're invited to the sacrifice. That's interesting. And Samuel says, make sure you bring all your sons. When they arrived at the sacrifice, Samuel saw Jesse's son Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is one of those famous passages of Scripture. The man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we do, right? We look at physical uh, appearances. We look at impressive resumes. We look at charismatic personalities. And none of those things are bad. It's not bad to be good looking. It's not bad to have a good resume. It's not bad to be a charismatic, you know, good speaker, dynamic leader. None of those things are bad. But even though they're not bad, they're not, they're not able to tell you what a person is really like. They're not able to tell you what's going on internally. They're not able to tell you what the fruit of that person's life is going to be. It doesn't even tell you what their character, their heart is like, and that's what really matters. And of course, we live in a culture that has become, you know, even more obsessed with appearances than it was even a few years ago, right? Because social media allows us to be whoever we want to be, and we get to show the world only the sides of ourselves that we know will be impressive to others. It's so interesting being a pastor because I talk to people, and I kind of know what's going on in their life. And then I also have them on social media. And I'm like, you wouldn't know any of you know, all this stuff is going on in their life if you just look at this. You get to present the best of yourself. We get to show what we want to show. And, and because we live in a culture that is obsessed with appearances, and, and we tend to learn how to cultivate that outward appearance. And we spend time doing that, curating our, our outward appearance. And I mean, even in church, it can get to be like that, right? If you're in kind of a more... Um, religion-heavy church, a more legalistic church, you kind of look at what the rules are and what the, the regulations are, and you know how to craft yourself in such a way that you fit in. doesn't mean internally that you're there, but you, you know what you're supposed to do to look proper. And so it, sometimes I think what's happening is we spend so much time curating our outward appearance, we neglect to curate the, the inner selves. We neglect to cultivate our heart and our character. Recently, you know, you're probably aware, we've had a lot of scandals exposed in the Western church of pastoral leaders having deep moral failings or even groups of pastoral leaders covering up abuse within their own organizations and even knowingly lying about the things that are going on, trying to keep up appearances to cover the rot within. And I think Jesus would probably put it like this, woe to you, you are the whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. And I think most of us know how to cultivate that outward image that appears the way we want it to appear, but we're reminded in the Lord's rejection of Eliab and in the other sons of Jesse that the real qualification is what's going on inside of us, what's going on in our heart. 
Consistently, what you find in, in the narrative of the Gospels is that Jesus is pointing out hypocrisy and injustice in the, the you know, greatest religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. I mean, a Pharisee was a really moral and righteous and upstanding person, and, and the average person would go, I couldn't be like a Pharisee. Outwardly, they looked perfect. And yet Jesus consistently points out, you're whitewashed tombs. There's things in your heart that aren't right. Really what's happening is the focus of their heart is out of alignment. Although they look like they're close to God, the orientation of their heart is pointing away from God. And then there's those who look far from God, but the orientation of their heart is pointing towards him. And who, do you, who does Jesus you know, elevate? Not the ones who look close to God who are walking away, but the ones who look far who are moving closer. And I think that's an important lesson for us. And I would like to think that I'm not like a Pharisee. I'd like to think that that's not really the way I can do it. But listen, the truth of it is, I know what it takes to look the part. I know what it takes to look the part of an evangelical pastor. And if I'm not careful, I can begin relying on external indicators of righteousness and neglect to care for my own heart. I can start going, oh, look, I preach this many sermons. I do this much Bible study. I lead this many people, I I pray with this many people, I can start using those external indicators and honestly, the heart is a little deceitful and you can start to say, see, everything's going fine and I can neglect to look at what's really going on inside of me. I can neglect to allow God to search me and know me and point out any wicked way in me. And so as we read these words, the Lord looks on the heart, there's an encouragement there. You don't need to be successful in the world's eyes to be used of God or to follow God because God does not look at outward appearance. He knows your heart. But there's a challenge there as well, isn't there? That we might look impressive to those looking at us from the outside. But what is the true condition of our heart? Is my heart the kind of heart that is soft towards God? Is my heart a heart that's oriented towards the things of God? Is it a heart that God can use and mold and shape? And so the real question is, what is my heart focused on? Because where our treasure is, there our heart will also be. And so the orientation, the the direction of where your heart is matters much more than your skill or outward abilities. Honestly, I'm convinced there are many people out there who are really good speakers in the church. They're charismatic, they're dynamic. I'd rather have someone who shows me their faithfulness in their prayer life. Maybe they fumble a bit when they preach. Maybe they look at their notes the entire time. But if their heart is oriented towards the things of God, if they pray for their people, that is a person who will be used powerfully of God. They might not look impressive, but the fruit of their life will show you who they are. So we don't really know here why Eliab and the other sons of Jesse are found lacking in the heart department. But we come to, all the, we come to the end of all the sons who are present, and that kind of puts Prophet Samuel in a bit of an awkward situation. None of the sons presented are fit. So Samuel goes, so did you forget one? Like, are you missing? Like, where is it? Are these all the sons you have? Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? And Jesse says, well, they're still the youngest, but right now he's out tending the sheep. Samuel tells Jesse, send for him. We're not eating until he gets here, which is a really good way to, like, make sure he gets there in time. We're not eating until he gets here. Like, I'm serious about this. Samuel's like, oh, man, that meat smells so good. Like, well, I'm not eating. Can't eat it. Can't eat it until he gets here. So we don't know why Jesse, when told to bring his sons to the sacrifice, doesn't bring David. It could be that Jesse just assumed that there's no way that little David, the little shepherd boy, would need to be there for the sacrifice. 
It's probably that David is just seen as not all that important. He is, after all, the youngest son, and he's just a shepherd boy, keeping in mind that shepherds really didn't have a prestigious position in Israel. Like, you're a shepherd. It demands no skill. Go out and watch over the sheep. You don't need to know anything to do that. It's not really, it's a demanding job, but it doesn't require any skill set. So not only is David just a shepherd, but his father says, well, he's the youngest. And so what we're meant to really understand here is that David is seen in his father's eyes and probably by all of his family's eyes as really not that important and not that skilled. He's just a boy. Verse 12 describes David like this. Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Now we read that that phrase, beautiful eyes and handsome, healthy appearance, and we think, oh, yes, the fine-looking boy, David. You know, and in other places, David is described as good-looking. But the beautiful eyes is not meant to be read as a compliment here. The beautiful eyes is actually a nod to his boyishness and his innocence. You could actually sort of read this as, he was a cute kid. Really, like Jesse sent for him, he was a cute kid. Hey, you got this cute, you know, maybe 13, 13-year-old boy comes in, like, oh, he's a good, cute little, little kid, you know, he's a, he's a boy. So David, this ordinary kid chosen by God for the extraordinary role of being Israel's second king, And the Lord says, anoint him, for he's the one. So Samuel takes the horn of oil, anoints him in the presence of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day forward. And then Samuel left and went to Ramah, which I find kind of interesting. Like, now what? Oh, Samuel's gone. Spirit of the Lord is on you. Anyways, but David, as we know, he's going to go on to do extraordinary things. But it's only because the extraordinary power of the spirit of God rests upon him. And we notice as well that David spent quite a few years after this anointing being prepared for his kingly role. And how was David prepared? Well, he was faithful in his ordinary life. Later on, he's going to be kind of forced into the wilderness, a place of testing, a place of trial. But he was faithful in his ordinary life, and he kept his mind and his heart oriented towards the things of God. Remember that Frederick Buechner quote from earlier? You enter the extraordinary by way of the ordinary. So think of David before this moment that Samuel anoints him. For David, it's just another ordinary day. He's out in the fields watching the sheep like he does every day. Maybe he's writing a psalm. You know, his father and brothers are having a bit of a special day. Samuel's here. They're having a sacrifice. They're going to roast up some meat. It's pretty good. David's not invited. David's out in the field doing what he always does. It's just an ordinary, everyday day until it's interrupted by the extraordinary From a little boy shepherd to the anointed king of Israel, you enter the extraordinary by way of the ordinary. Can I tell you, I want you all to be prepared for God to do his extraordinary purposes in your ordinary life. I was out on vacation one time, and uh, I was in Mexico, and I was having a great time, and we ran into this guy who was a firefighter from Wales, so that was super fun, and uh, he found out I was a pastor, and so we're just playing volleyball and, and doing cool stuff, and then he finds me later, and he says, hey, you're a pastor, and I said, yeah. He said, I've been having some weird health issues after I'm done my training sessions. I, I get these aches all over my body that's not normal, that's not normal for me. I don't know what's happening. Can you, can you like, bless me or something? I was like, absolutely, I can bless you. And I prayed for him to be healed. And friends with him on Facebook, he's still doing his firefighting thing. But I'm just living my ordinary life when the extraordinary moment is presented to me. And I think that that's the way the Spirit of God works. You enter the extraordinary by way of the ordinary. But think about David with me for a second. The oil is poured upon him. The Holy Spirit rushes upon him and fills him with, with power and anointing. Now what? And then Samuel goes, okay, my job's done here. And he, he goes off to Ramah. 
And don't you think that David is wondering, now what? How do I go from being the shepherd boy of Bethlehem to the ruler of Israel, especially since Saul is still functioning as king? Do I lead a rebellion? Do I walk up to Saul and say, hey, Saul, buddy, you had a good run as king. Well, not really that good. You had a run as a king. You had to try at it. My turn now. How's this going to work? How are you going to go from shepherd boy to king? How's it going to play out? And this part of David's story reminds me of a, a fictional retelling of the David story written by Jonathan Rogers for kind of preteens. It's a trilogy called the Wilder King Trilogy. And there's the part of the story where the, the ordinary farm boy is told by the prophet that he's going to be the next king of the land. In the story, it's called the Wilder King. And the boy asks the prophet, well, okay, if I'm going to be the king, how should I live now? Like, what should I do? And the prophet says, live the same way you would live if you weren't the wilder king. Live the life that unfolds before you. Wanting, of course, more specifics than that, the boy says, well, how do I become the king? There's already a king. I'm a, I'm a farm boy. How am I going to become the king? And the prophet says, well, live the life that unfolds before you. And I think those words, live the life that unfolds before you, really capture the essential element of how David rises from the pasture to the position of the king. He lives the life that unfolds before him. Because the way from the pasture to the palace is way too complex for David to figure out. If David rushes ahead of the Lord, he might do something that's going to disqualify him from the role. And so what David does is he faithfully lives out his life, trusting that the Lord will accomplish his purposes in his life. And I think sometimes we too can rush ahead of the Lord, thinking that we're serving God, when in reality we're, we're only serving ourselves. I'm reminded of a story of a guy who kind of, some people had noticed in his life, he was in ministry school, and some people had noticed he had some issues with pride, and one of his professors sat down with him and said, you know, just wanted to try and get to the bottom of this, and said, so, so what do you want to do for the Lord? And he said, I want to lead thousands of people to faith in Jesus. Well, it sounds really good. And the professor said, can you tell me the word picture that comes to your mind when you think of leading thousands of people to the Lord? He goes, okay, so I'm on a big stage, and the lights are on me, and when I give the altar call, thousands rush to the stage. There's the problem right there. The heart seems like it's good. The heart is kind of in the right place, but he's not ready yet. He would be rushing ahead of the Lord until somebody says, hey, wait a minute. There's something here that needs to be changed a little bit. And I think David's kind of in that place. He's, how is he going to get there? He needs to just live the life that unfolds before him. He's got to humbly submit. If the Lord says it, he'll get it done. I'm just going to keep moving. And David can do this because the orientation of his heart is already right. His, his heart is already fixed on the things of the Lord. His heart is right. And so David can faithfully go where life leads, confident that in everything he does, he's obeying the Lord because his heart's desire is to do so. David will write in Psalm 37 that a person's steps are established by the Lord. So what he means is when your heart is fixated on the things of God, when you're faithful to what he's calling you, just keep moving and the Lord will direct your steps. And that's what I want to communicate to people, maybe even today, who are trying to discern what God's will is or what God's call is on their life, that if your heart is oriented right, meaning if your eyes are fixed on Jesus and the things of heaven, you can live your life as it unfolds without a lot of fear of getting it wrong. Because you will be sensitive to the Spirit. You will use Scripture as your guide. You will prayerfully submit your way to the Lord. You'll ask other people to pray for you. You're, you will treasure the things of heaven. And that's exactly where you need to be for God's will to be done in you. And he can do his will in you no matter where you end up. Right? Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a teacher or an electrician or a mechanic or a pastor, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the orientation of your heart. And God will work through that.
And that's really where we find David after his anointing. He just is being faithful where he is. He's just waiting. He's continuing to live his life and he's trusting that what God has said, you'll be the anointed king of Israel, will come to pass. And so David is in two places after his anointing. He's in the pasture with the sheep. So this is the funniest thing to me. He becomes the anointed king of Israel. The power of the spirit falls upon him and his dad's like, all right, so the sheep still need watching. Right, the sheep aren't gonna watch themselves. So David, it goes back to being a shepherd. He's the anointed king of Israel, but he's a shepherd boy. And sometime after that, we don't know exactly how long passes, but, but an evil spirit is tormenting Saul, and, uh, and Saul's attendants want to find someone who can play music, who play the lyre to come and kind of you know, calm Saul and drive the evil spirit away. And someone knows David uh, plays the lyre really well. And so David now kind of finds himself in two places. It seems what's happening is David is uh, watching his father's sheep when he can, and then he goes to Saul's palace and serves him as well. And it kind of seems like he's going back and forth. There's a bit of a mess in the chronology between Samuel 16 and Samuel 17. But the best I can come to is that he's kind of going back and forth. And 1 Samuel 17, 15 records this, that, that David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And now David's three older brothers are serving as soldiers in Saul's army, but I find this so interesting. David, the anointed king of Israel, is in the humble position of being a delivery boy. Right? He's at the father's field. His dad says, go give some food to your brothers. Okay, dad, I'll deliver some food to the brothers. And he brings his brothers some food. And David arrives there in time to see these two armies facing off across the valley. David sees Goliath challenging the men of Israel's army. And he sees the men of Israel's army running away when Goliath comes out. So David naturally asks what's going on. Naturally because he's like, what is going on? For a faithful man of God, he's like, what, you don't believe God's going to save you? Also, he is the anointed king of Israel. So, I mean, he wants to know what's going on. So he starts asking some questions, and here's what's so interesting to me. Eliab, his older brother, rips into him. Eliab burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here, and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Think Eliab's a little jealous? Just a, little, just a little bitter about being passed over for king. But what Eliab is doing here is he's putting David in his place. He's saying, hey, remember, David, you're just a shepherd boy. Who's looking after the sheep, David? You think you're somebody? You're a nobody. And one of the things that I want you guys to watch out for is that sometimes when we begin to sense God calling us to the next place of service, to the next step of discipleship, there's going to be people there to just remind us how ordinary we are, using our ordinariness and our weakness as a weapon against us to prove to us that what you think God is calling you to do couldn't be for you. Basically saying, who do you think you are? Sometimes that voice is internal. Sometimes it's something you've believed about yourself. You're going, I can't do what God wants me to do. I can't pray for that person. Who am I to do that? Well, you're infused. You're, you're indwelt by the very spirit of God. So you are the perfect person to do what God's calling you to do. If your heart is oriented right and you're faithful to what he's saying. And we remember the words of Paul to the Corinthians. And he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And we know, of course, that David does defeat Goliath. That must have looked pretty foolish. It's a foolish thing of the world for a young shepherd boy to step out, no armor, in front of this warrior 
who knows what battle is about. And he's got a sword and a javelin and a shield and armor. And there's David, the shepherd boy, in his normal, ordinary clothes with a sling and a few stones. And David defeats him easily. What seemed impossible to every soldier in Israel's army was a really straightforward and simple matter, at least for the one who remembered the faithfulness of God, for one whose heart was oriented towards the ways of God, because as David says to Goliath, you come against me of sword and spear and javelin, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. That's the key. All those gathered here will know it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Here's the takeaway. The early days of David remind us that we must be faithful to the life God has given us. Be faithful in your parenting. Be faithful in your workplace. Be faithful as a friend and as a member of your church. And if we're faithful in the little things, little, then we can be trusted with greater things. And and I would say this. Don't you think faithfulness in this world is really an extraordinary thing? And most of all, if we want to be sure that we're in the will of God, if we want to make sure that we're doing what God has planned for us, if we want to encounter God in the ordinary, then let us have hearts that are oriented towards him. Let our eyes become fixed on the things of heaven and not the things of earth. Let our hearts long for the things of God. And in that way, you can be sure that God's will be done in you. Can you imagine someone who longs after the things of God somehow missing it? I can't conceive of that. Someone who has the very spirit of God dwelling within them, longing after the things of God, do you think they're, they're going to miss it? I don't think so. But I think you can miss it when your, your eyes become fixated on the things of the earth or, or your own desires or, or whatever it is. You've got to keep your eyes fixed on the things of heaven. And how do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Well, again, we abide in him. Seek him, listen to him, talk to him, meditate on his word, imitate him. And like David, we need to open our hearts to God and we say, search me, God. Know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so my encouragement to you today is just be faithful. Be faithful where you are. Keep your heart and your mind oriented on the things of of heaven and and towards the person of Jesus, your, your friend, your savior, the author and perfecter of your faith. And in that way, God will work in you to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. And keep your eyes open for the extraordinary purposes of God. You never know, some firefighter from Wales might say, hey, can you bless me or something? And then you get to, and it's pretty fun. We're gonna take communion together today. And as we come into to this time of communion, um, it kind of strikes me as interesting. We're talking about encountering God in the ordinary. And as I was preparing for it, I was, I was kind of reminded that these ordinary objects, we've got the bread and the wine, well, for us it's juice, But these ordinary objects represent to us the extraordinary sacrifice of Jesus, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And think about this, Jesus humbled himself, taking on the ordinary life of a human. Think how ordinary human life is, and Jesus became fully human. Yet he retained his extraordinary divinity, fully human, fully divine, humbled for our sakes. Then he went to the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And think about the cross You know, in our day and age, the cross has become this symbol, but in the Roman era, the cross was an ordinary method of death and torture. The Romans were not shy about using the cross. A common instrument of torture and death used for the extraordinary purposes of God, where the sins of the world were carried in his body on the cross so that we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. And so I just see this, that God uses these ordinary things to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. A human body like ours 
carrying the sins of the world in, in his divinity. An ordinary cross where the sins of the world were nailed to it. These ordinary things become extraordinary. And today we, we take the bread and it's just ordinary bread and yet Jesus reminds us that this bread, this ordinary bread is extraordinary because it is broken for us. And Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Let's take together. And he took the cup, just an ordinary cup. You ever see Indiana Jones and the, the Holy Grail is just that ordinary, an ordinary mug? And he takes this ordinary cup of wine and he says, but this is really my blood shed for you. Let's take together in remembrance of the blood shed for us. As the worship team makes their way up, I'm just going to pray over us. Father in heaven, you are the source of all that is good. And I ask that you would keep us faithful in serving you. I ask that you would help us to live out the truth of Christ and to fill our hearts with his love so that we might serve you in faith and in love. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for the joy that you share your life with us, that somehow we are united with you. I ask that you keep us in your presence and help us to do your will. Remind us by your spirit of what matters to you. Lead us, direct us, guide us. Help us to fix the eyes of our heart upon you and on the purposes of your kingdom. And thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross for us. Thank you that your blood was shed for us, an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to become ambassadors of this message. I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would lead us to those places where you will do extraordinary things through our ordinary hands and our, our ordinary minds and, and the ordinary things we say. And I pray that the very power of God would infuse our ordinariness with the extraordinary power of God that's been given to us. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.